Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Molly Horan. Molly is the author of the delightful novel Epically Earnest, which is available now from HarperCollins. She is a professor at New York University, where her course offerings include reading and writing LGBTQIA fiction. From Annie on my mind to They Both Die at the End, it's a course that I would like to take. <laughs> she is also edited and written for publications like BuzzFeed, Refinery29, and Bust. And she holds an MFA in writing for children and young adults from the New School. Molly, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? I am doing well. I am dog sitting for my parents out on the West Coast. So it's been a nice change of scenery. And I'll tell you, in my personal life, this is like Molly season. So I just ordered a Molly the American Girl doll off of eBay. I just published a piece at LGBTQ Nation with my editor, Molly Spray Regan. And last week, I just finished reading Killers of the Flower Moon, which centers on this incredible Indigenous woman, Molly Burkhart, who survived the Wasache reign of terror in the 1920s. And now I'm talking to you, Molly Horan great time to be a Molly. Congratulations. There's a lot of Mollies running around. Now I haven't looked at the statistic lately, but at least when I was in high school, it was the Mm -hmm. number three dog name in America. And I don't know where the rankings have sat. So I always, I often ask when I meet Mollies, I say, (laughs) are you the human spelling or the dog spelling? Because I am the dog (laughs) spelling. Yes. I always think of the human spelling as an IE, but I am. Really? So I... Mm-hmm. I would say that not 50% of the time, but a good percent of the time when I meet a new person, they will be like, my dog's name is Molly. <laughs> I had no idea it was such a common puppy name. That's surprising yeah. to me because I, I have this very deep association with Molly McIntyre, the American Girl Dog. Do you have a favorite pop cultural Molly? I mean, Molly McIntyre is probably <laughs> up there. I read all the Molly books. I had the Molly doll. Yeah, I don't. The only other one that comes to mind is Molly Bloom. Also really good. I mean, very different, but very good. Very different. Yes. (laughs) Yes. While we're on the topic of highfalutin literature, we'll get to talking about Little Women, but first, Ethically Earnest, your YA take on the importance of being earnest. Congratulations. How was your debut year unfolding? Very well. Very well. It's been incredibly exciting. My favorite activity in the world is to go to bookstores and there's definitely been an added level of excitement of going being like, oh, is my book there? I made the admitted misstep. I had a very clear picture in my mind for years and years before I ever got a book deal that on my release day, I was going to go to all my favorite bookstores in New York City where I'd been living for a decade. And so because I'm a professor, this was in June, I was on summer vacation. I had the whole day. I'm like, this is what I'm doing the whole day. And I went to a couple and they're like, we don't have that in yet. This is the first day. And I'm like, of course. But I did. I found one my release day where it was actually in the Barnes and Noble. And then subsequently over the summer, they right. appeared in more and more places. But right, just what? that's, no. that's a, I guess, a caveat for any other debut people. Sometimes, again, they'll stock it the first day, but sometimes it takes a little time. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get to have your like first day grand tour of the New York City book scene. But I mean, I still, I, I saw it in one story. It was enough. It was, I think I might have been slightly devastated if I couldn't find it at yeah. all that first day, but I did. So it was okay. Okay. Yeah. And I can tell you, I went to the Indigo here in Victoria, BC. My aunt is a big reader. 
So I, I had ordered it ahead of time. It's a long story, but she was like, you know, we have four independent bookstores here. I'm like, I know, but <laughs> I ordered it in advance and they had seven copies on the shelf. I mean, Victoria BC is going up for it, ethically earnest. So I will say that. So as I said, this book is your YA take on the famous Oscar Wilde play, which I mean, I describe it as famous and it, I know it is, but I have never been privileged enough to see it or read it. My only encounter with it up to this point is that a good friend of mine has the Tumblr username, Algernon Moncria. <laughs> it's a good Tumblr name. It's a great Tumblr name. So I decided to be just very brave and dive into Epically Earnest with only that knowledge. I have to say, I loved your book all in its own. So tell me how you shaped your heroine, Janie, out of what I understand is a male character in the original. <laughs> Yeah. So I always joke about this, but there's a lot of truth in it. As a writer, I am not so interested in plot. I, I'm going to butcher this quote, but one of my favorite why authors and authors in general is John Green. And he has expressed similar sentiments and said that if it was his choice, he'd just have two characters talking in a room. But that is novels need plot. So I thought, you know, I a retelling, I'll steal someone else's in the literary appropriate way to do it, which is an adaptation. And I've always loved the importance of being earnest. They did it my high school, my freshman year of high school. That was when I, you know, first joined drama club. I'm like, this is amazing. So when thinking about doing a retelling, I really wanted to make all the characters queer because I feel like Oscar Wilde would appreciate that. Yes. And as far as shaping Janie, one of the things that always stuck out to me plot wise in the importance of being earnest is the fact that he was left in a handbag at the train station and found. And this is just <laughs> yes. part of his story and thinking about what would that mean for a modern kid. And I also, so when I first graduated grad school, my first career for lack of a better word was working at places like BuzzFeed and Refining29 and Know Your Meme. And so really being deep in online culture and thinking a lot about the kids who are memes, a success kid and kind of any viral video with a child <laughs> and thinking, what might it be like to be 12, 13 and start stumbling on this and being like, oh, mm -hmm. strangers were interacting with <laughs> basically my home videos. So I, I really, that's kind of the idea that I jumped off with, which is what would it be like for this teenager who not only, you know, has to grapple with why was she left in a handbag at a train station, but also that she was a meme before she could know what a meme was? Yeah, no, I have to say, I thought the portrait of virality in this book was really on point. So she's the bag baby. She's found in a Gucci bag at a train station. And we get the whole portrait of how her eventual adopted father discovers her. But we also get the subsequent thing where later on, unfortunately, due to a, well, it's Algernon's fault. I don't know that he really invites it, but he leaves a hashtag on her 18th birthday photo, hashtag bag baby babe. And then it gets out like a bunch of gross men are like, oh boy, the bag baby is 18. <laughs> and there's this kind of echo, this really gross, upsetting echo. And I, I thought even that was, that is something that I have seen so often on the internet. And like, you just nailed the voice and like, that's the, that's the darkness in this book. There's not a lot of darkness in that book. There's not a lot of darkness, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> there are many things to being a viral kid. It's not all like dancing on Ellen. <laughs> so I, I really appreciated that. And another thing that I really appreciated was Janie's voice. Her inner dialogue is so funny. It's observant and colorful and like full of these really well-timed punchlines. So how did you hone your writerly voice? And was there anything you took from Oscar Wilde in that regard? Because his little quips are all over the book as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was excited that the Oscar Wilde quotes in front of each chapter, that was completely the idea of my editor, but I had a good time <laughs> finding all these quips, you know, remembering mm-hmm. writing some of them on my notebooks and my binders in high school. I, I will say that I, learning how to write novels, any kind of creative fiction, I have struggled with just about every aspect of that. I'm Right now, I'm finishing my, my PhD in creative writing, Ooh. and that means write another novel. My very kind thesis advisors, I know, are slightly frustrated sometimes with... <laughs> Some of the stumbling blocks I occasionally find, but I've never had a problem with dialogue. That's always just come really naturally for me. So that that's just dumb luck. (laughs) (laughs) You are, you are superb at it. This is one of those books. I'm reading. damn, I'm going to need to ask you like, how does she do that? Maybe try to like, you know, mind melt in the Zoom call. You have a real talent for voice and for dialogue that just jumps off the page very clearly. And I want to ask also, like, is there a scene in the book that you're especially proud of? Maybe it was your favorite to write. Maybe it was one that was just a beast to figure out, but you feel like you finally nailed it in the end. Anything like that? I will say the one. So I was lucky enough to have kind of a release day event about a month later in a bookstore near my hometown, which was just mostly opportunity for my parents, friends, and people I grew up with to come and see. And it was great. Mm-hmm. And I chose to read the scene in the bowling alley yes. when <laughs> Algie breaks his finger. And I hadn't really thought about it as gory or anything. I literally, I picked that one because I'm like, it's the most active. You know, a lot of things are happening. It's not people sitting in a room, you know, and afterwards, again, my very kind relatives and family or friends were like, oh, it's so great. That's so great. And I don't remember who for, it might've been my uncle or something was like, that was really bloody. Like that was, that was, that was gory. So I, I enjoyed writing that and liked that it might be a little off type for what I normally write. Yeah. I love that scene as well, because it's not just, you said that he breaks his finger. His finger is That's broken true. for him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's very much, there is a toddler on a rampage who flings a bowling ball and an accident ensues. But then you have the lovely coda. One of the things Janie does is write these speculative obituaries to memorialize people while they're alive. And she writes this beautiful one about the future of this kid whose guilt over this incident blooms into a passion for orthopedic surgery. <laughs> Eventually he re-encounters an older algae. It's just, it's just lovely. It's so, I loved this book. I think it's so special. I am so excited to have you here. And it's also occurring to me before we get into Little Women, I never asked you to like recap your book. Do you want to just give us a quick like sure. elevator? I'm laughing a little bit. I also, I write mm-hmm. musical theater. I've been in the musical theater writing group. I'm in the person who runs it is very constantly on us to get better at elevator pitches. And <laughs> not just me, but the entire group, we fight mm-hmm. him, even though we know he's wrong because it's difficult yes. to come up with this. But it is about a teenage girl who... She was found in a handbag as a toddler and that video became a viral meme. And now she's a senior in high school. She's had a crush on her best friend's cousin for a long time. And the kind of situation presents itself where she has a long time to hang out with that cousin. So maybe something will happen. At the same time, her best friend is pursuing her cousin, which makes her a little nervous because her best friend is a more experienced person romantically and her cousin is not. And through all of this, she is basically questioning trying to f- whether she should try to find, and her best friend puts her down the road of finding possibly some biological relatives, which is something she's very purposefully put out of her mind for most of her life. And now she is confronted with that idea. And I mean, I loved, I loved, I loved, I loved the approach this book takes to adoption and queer family and found family. And 
anti-natalism. If we're going to get into that on this podcast, I don't know, but I just really, it was so fresh and it was something that I really appreciated as someone who also one day hopes to adopt and is pretty passionate about it, about that. So really, really enjoyed your LGBTYA take on the importance of being earnest. And now I think we have to get into what may be the very first LGBTYA book, Little Women. And you can, yes. you can correct me on that because you are the professor of LGBTYA. I mean, is there an earlier text here that is? Oh, what's so weird about talking about YA <laughs> in any kind of like official academic capacity is historically, technically, when it was first became a genre is the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. 1940s and 50s. But obviously there are texts yeah. about teenagers and that have resonated with teenagers before that. And as I often tell my students, some decisions about whether something is why or not as a marketing decision, Lovely Bones is an adult novel, even though the protagonists are teenagers. But yes, this is definitely an early queer coded teen book. Absolutely. And so what is your relationship to Little Women, Molly? So I absolutely loved the 90s movie growing up. Loved it, watched it all the time, would sob every single time that Beth died. And then a couple of years before the shutdown, 2018 maybe, there was a theater collective called the Hedge Pig Collective in Brooklyn, New York, that put out an ad that said they were doing an adaptation, a play of Little Women, and they were looking for a co-playwright, collaborator, dramaturg. And I am just a person who I'll apply for everything and anything. I'm like, that sounds like a cool opportunity. Why not? And I was very lucky to get picked and work with them. So they had a, a, it was both written and a devised piece. So I would write some, my co-playwright would write some, and then we'd get together with the actors and talk through some scenes. And so that was really the first time that I was reading Little Women before I had just relied on the movie. And then of sorry. course I've seen, I've seen the most recent one. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did I just, did I like invite you on this podcast by virtue of your being like an LGBTYA prof and like an author and not realize that you have literally written a stage adaptation of Little Women? I did. I did. It was fun. Oh my God. <laughs> Molly, <laughs> read and bury the lead. That's so exciting. Okay, well, now I have a zillion more questions about can I read it anywhere? Is it on YouTube? It was there and then it was gone. Wow. I will say I had never done devised theater before. Okay. And so, first of all, every single person was lovely. It was a great experience, but I definitely understand. I going in, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to write this thing and then they're going to tell me what's not working and then I'm going to fix that rather than what is this incredibly collaborative process. So that was, it was a learning experience for me and it was with people who were already steeped in this world. So I absolutely know there are moments where again, in the kindest way possible, kind closed doors, they must've been like, what is this woman doing? (laughs) (laughs) And there were also moments I think where I tried to modernize it more than they wanted to, especially Mm, with the language. I'm like, yes, modern language, modern take, great. And then come back and it was like, okay, we're back to the original. So that's more of the, where this is going. Okay. <laughs> so I still, I remember one of my friends came out and we were walking. And again, I was, mm-hmm. I was incredibly proud of whatever small part I had in this production, but walking back, I was like, how'd you like it? She's good. And you know, when you ask your friends to critique your work and you can tell they're holding something back. And I'm like, I'm not sure how much of my step got in in the end, she's like, okay, yeah, good. It didn't sound like you. <laughs> okay. Which again, the nature of this project, that right. made sense. But I was, yes, I was constantly 
learning about devised mm-hmm. theater and collaborative theater throughout the process. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is fast. I'm sorry I didn't know before. That feels like a really big oversight on my part. <laughs> but oh my God. Yeah, so the nature of theater is like, it's not intended to live forever always. So, I mean, that must be a very special memory for you. I mean, I wish I could see it. I would like to see it as the meme goes. I, I would like to see it, but. It was mm-hmm. very cool. I really wish I remember the name of the space, mm-hmm. but we were in, it, we wasn't a, it wasn't on a stage. It was in a large mm-hmm. building where people would sit all around in this room and the action of it would happen around you as if you were just dropped into the March house, which was very cool. That's so cool. Oh my God. Can I go back and talk? <laughs> like, yeah, I would love to see that. And I swear, listeners, we are going to get to dark days, the chapter we're talking about, but I do need, now I need to ask Molly some more questions about like, so what, did you do anything with the gender and sexuality of the characters at all? Because that's really what this podcast is sort of broadly about. Was there anything you brought to your understanding of Joe, especially? So again, it really was, we were staying pretty close to the text. The thing now, as you're asking these questions, mm-hmm. realizing how fuzzy some of my memories were, but I okay. do remember that especially the woman who led the theater troupe was very interested in kind of the portrait of Meg's motherhood and Ooh, okay. that she felt it was both very interesting and progressive in the text, but there were also ways to make it even more so that she was really interested. I don't remember what chapter it's literally called, but she always called it the jam chapter. where she's just overwhelmed (laughs) by caring for these twins and making jam. And that I think she rightly so said that you could read it as this stereotypical, you know, overworked mother, very frazzled, but it was really about a conversation about going to her husband and being like, hey, you know, because of gender norms, you might not have the expectation of helping me, but I know that you love me and see me as an equal. So like, let's have a conversation about how we can both take care of these babies and not go crazy. So I remember that being very interesting. I'm excited to get to that chapter because she is, as you said, struggling to look after her kids, struggling to make jam. And then her husband is basically like, hey, I'm having some friends for dinner, by the way. So just throw a few extra servings together. And she's like, ah, (laughs) (laughs) No, but it does lead to this conversation about equal workloads in the home, which I think is so special. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're still having conversations like that with with partners just because you don't, you know, even if someone loves you, they don't always see what you are struggling with unless you tell them. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I could ask a million more questions, but I'm just going to ask my standard next question because I do want us to get to dark days today and I don't want to keep you here for three hours. Which March sister are you? And again, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is March sister. As a teenager, I would have absolutely said Joe. Every Mm -hmm. single aspiring writer would. (laughs) I am not nearly, and certainly as a teenager, was not rebellious. Like Joe was not a (laughs) potster at all. Definitely saw a lot of myself in Beth as someone Mm. who always wanted to be the peacemaker, but that kind of fell apart with the beautiful monologue she tells about seeing futures for everyone, not for herself. Because again, even as a teenager, I'm like, I know what I'm doing. I've got my goals. I'm all set. (laughs) I would say it's much easier to say which March sister I am absolutely not. And that is Amy. I (laughs) have never liked the character of Amy, not in any of the adaptations, not in the book how the story panned out with Lori has always, I would say that I've been frustrated by a lot of books and media in my life, but I don't think there's been such a consistent frustration as literally when I saw the Greta Gerwig movie, I knew they weren't going to change it. It's an integral (laughs) part of the book, but I'm like, maybe they'll fix it. Maybe they'll fix it and not have that happen. 
you are certainly not alone in those opinions. I think many a person comes away hating Amy. I think the duty, I have said it before, I'll say it again. The work that Florence Pugh had to do in the Greta Gerwig movie to make Amy likable was like when a mom lifts a car off a baby. It's like, you're truly like... Well, yeah. she's more interesting. The mm-hmm. the Greta Gerwig movie, I, I didn't have the immediate affection that I have the 90s version mm-hmm. for. Just, this is inaccurate. Even as I use mm-hmm. this word, I know it's inaccurate, but I keep mm-hmm. thinking of the 90s one as campy. It's not. Mm. But just the Greta Gerwig is very serious, which I think yeah. worked, but I... Yeah, I'm still more, have more of affinity to the 90s one, which seems yeah. a little less serious. No, completely understand. Actually, especially if that is your child of little women, like it imprinted on you like a baby bird. That's And, and well, like Amy and that, like Kirsten Dunst, they actually hired a child to be right. Amy, which I think it, even like Florence Pugh doing her very best to be like acting like a child in a classroom full of children. It's not the same thing as an actual child playing Amy, which I think changes the tenor of some scenes. So completely hear you there. But this is a very Beth-centric chapter. So, I mean, at this point, I'm going to ask you to recap chapter 18, Dark Days. Yeah. So chapter 18, Beth is ill. I will admit rereading the chapter, I have a really hard time and I wish I knew Mm -hmm. what the literal timeline was Mm. just because as time seems to pass, I'm like, how long can you be sick with this right. illness? Especially because there seems to be a long period where she's just not doing well and followed by the period where she loses consciousness. I think I was working off, this again shows what a bad English professor I am because I'm going to reference a piece of classic literature, but the movie version. So the movie version of Sense and Sensibility, when the sister gets the fever, she's immediately unconscious and on death's door and then mm-hmm. is fine within 24 hours. I'm like, yeah, that seems about right. Right. You get really sick. Mm-hmm. They try to plead you because medicine was horrible at the time. And then you either die or you don't. So there's just a long period of time for Meg and Joe to be very nervous. And they're not being much that you can do. Right. And Lori eventually sends a telegram after their mother. There is such a wild little scene where Lori is comforting Joe and tells her, first first gives her wine, medicinal wine. And then it's like, obviously he's upset about Beth. He's upset that he can't do more to help Joe. And then tells Joe that her mother's coming and she (laughs) kisses him. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, no, you can keep keep kissing me. That's fine. (laughs) Just proves that even in, in the darkest days, there's still some possibility for romance um, Mm. or teenage boy lust. And then just as the chapter ends, Beth is out of danger. Well, so as you were speaking, I looked up the National Health Service of the UK Scarlet Fever page. So I do have some, (laughs) I have some hot medical advice for you about the timeline here that I think will be illuminating. But I also want to say, as for the kissing scene, which I remember rereading that segment for this podcast and kind of being shocked to realize, oh, Lori does actually kiss Joe in this book. I don't remember that happening. So he, I'm just going to read this. He patted her back soothingly and finding that she was recovering, fall, recovering from her sadness because she's just had a sad outburst, followed it up by a bashful kiss or two, which brought Joe round at once. Holding onto the banisters, she put him away gently, saying breathlessly, oh, don't, I didn't mean to. It was dreadful of me, but you were such a dear to go and do it in spite of Hannah calling. She's talking about how Lori sent for Marmy that I couldn't help flying at you. Tell me all about it. And don't give me wine again. It makes me act. So Joe got excited, threw her arms around Lori. And Lori was like, ah, 
so excited. And like kissed her. It doesn't say where, but when the kissing started, Joe was like, okay, let's relax. She's like, how can I repay you? Lori's like, well, I don't know. Embrace me again. I enjoyed it. So just to clear up the attitude toward the kissing there, it's a really interesting sequence. We've talked about how Joe and Lori's relationship is developing into crush territory, but it's really on the line here. And it seems like they both know that, which is interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before I drop some Scarlet Fever knowledge on you. <laughs> well, I will say one thing I appreciated yeah. about the Greta Gorg version is mm-hmm. In the 90s version, I can picture this so well, you know, Mm -hmm. when a writer's Joe, when Laurie proposes, is Mm -hmm. completely caught off guard. It's like, what are you talking about? This is coming from nowhere. And Mm -hmm. Saoirse Ronan's Joe is like, I have known this is coming for years. I've put this off as long as I could. (laughs) And that seems to be closer to the truth. If someone has a crush on you, even if you hope that it'll go away, even if you hope that you can avoid it, because you don't feel the same way and you don't want to hurt them. You want to preserve your friendship. Again, you'd have to, you'd have to be pretty clueless not to know. Yeah. I think I can speak for like having read some of Alcott's correspondence with one of the quote unquote inspirations for Lori, Alfie Whitman. There is a flirtatious tone to those letters. I think she especially enjoyed getting to be a boy with him and flirting with the possibility of them both being boys. But I think she was also very clear about her boundaries and about not wanting to get married She congratulates him when he does get married and have kids. So I think what's interesting about this is that Joe and Lori are both expressing their feelings. And Joe is also just being very, very clear about her boundaries. Not even like, I'm not ready to do that. She's just like, I'm going to put him gently away and be like, no, (laughs) that's not what this is. We can get more into that. But I did want to also answer your burning question burning, unintentional pun there (laughs) about Scarlet Fever. This is nhs.uk. This is a reputable site. We're not going off InfoWars. Scarlet fever lasts for around one week. You can spread scarlet fever to other people up to six days before you get symptoms. If you don't take antibiotics, which I have to assume Beth was not, you can spread the infection for two to three weeks after your symptoms start. We're looking at, it sounds like Amy is going to have to stay away for at least three weeks and they know that. And the actual fever, the worst of it is going to be lasting for about a week. So that's the timeline that we're working with here. Um, Yeah, because I'm with you. I'm like, fever for that long? But no, it sounds like it was that long. And it sounds like obviously it would have been especially brutal before antibiotics. There's also some pictures here on the National Health Service website that I wish I could unsee, but (laughs) poor Beth, we'll set that aside. Yeah. So I was saying to you when we first got on the call, I'm like, this is the most depressing chapter. And you're like, no, but she lives. (laughs) So that is something that I actually really want to get into because we know that Beth and Beth's illness are based very much in the real experiences of Elizabeth Alcott, who did pass away, although we don't know from what necessarily from extended illness. It sounds like perhaps there were hereditary issues in the Alcott family with clinical depression, manic disorders. So we know all that. But the interesting thing for me and something we've briefly discussed, but I guess now this is really the moment, is that she wrote the first volume of Little Women without ever expecting that there would be a sequel. And so when she drew on these experiences of Beth's, the real life Elizabeth Alcott's illness and death, she chose to have Beth live. Why do you think Alcott would have made that choice in at least writing this first volume? I've seen the so this is a kind of mean-spirited criticism that I have okay, seen okay. lobbed, not at Little Women, lobbed at YA, yeah. that it is adults 
writing fan fiction of their teenage years, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what do you wish? Do you wish you were cooler? Do you wish that you ended up with someone that you Mm -hmm. liked? First of all, I'm like, you haven't read a lot of YA. A lot of YA, (laughs) that's what they want happened. And they have very dark fantasies. But also, people have been doing that in fiction forever. They have been writing loved ones who died living and relationships that didn't work out working out. And as long as you can make that work in an entertaining, compelling way with beautiful prose, yeah, mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> that, yep. that sounds great. <laughs> or yeah. as long as you don't do whatever Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> did in Inception. Like that's a bad way of keeping a loved one alive through fiction, yeah. but through prose, you can do it. Yeah. Okay, so when Lou Alcott starts going into other people's dreams and re-engineering Elizabeth Alcott back to life, then we might have a problem. But I was so struck by the emotions of grief and yearning and wanting the fever to turn are so real in this chapter. And we get a lot of very candid, sort of like deathbed, like, oh God, if you let Beth live, I will be so good. If God spares Beth, I'll try to love and serve him all my life, answered Joe with equal further. And what's interesting there is I'll try. <laughs> like, okay, me... That is good hedging your bets. I know it, it wasn't written at the time, but she's read the monkey's paw. She's like, you have to give yourself <laughs> loopholes when you make promises. She's like, I'll give it my best. I can't make any promises. But there's a lot of... Joe evaluating the way that she's been living, a lot of wanting to be better. And she seems to take over the duty of nursing Beth. She actually says there's a really interesting part of it. So I'm just going to quote here. This is from a dialogue with Lori. Oh me, it does seem as if all the troubles came in a heap and I got the heaviest part on my shoulders, sighed Joe, spreading her wet handkerchief over her knees to dry. Don't Meg pull fair? Asked Lori, looking indignant. Oh, yes, she tries to, but she don't love Beth as I do, and she won't miss her as I shall. Which is a shocking thing to say about your sister (laughs) and how she might feel about grieving your sister. But I think there's something really compelling in this moment about how it's a terrible thing to say. It's also probably true. And it says so much that she trusts it to Lori. She lets Lori see this ugly narcissistic part of her grief. I think that just speaks to the depth of their bond. I don't, do you have any reflections on that moment? I think it also, sometimes it can be easier. You might not think about saying awful things if you just believe them to be so true. Like of course, everyone knows that Beth's the most special to me. Like that's not something yeah. that anyone would question. So of course I'll be the saddest. Yeah. And certainly Alcott makes a point of saying Meg and Amy have an affinity and Joe and Beth have an affinity and So maybe naturally Joe just is going to be hit harder by it. It also seems like Meg is just less able or maybe less willing to like face Beth's illness directly. She's less removed from the situation. She's not flying into the arms of her friends necessarily as Joe is. So it's an interesting portrait of Meg here. It doesn't necessarily flatter Meg, (laughs) which is, I like that Alcott is able to kind of be a grown up about her characters. Meg really isn't meeting this occasion. And Joe is quite candid in saying Meg is not going to miss Beth like I'm going to. It's interesting how really flawed and human Alcott lets these characters be in this dark moment. Absolutely. It is so interesting thinking about the two impacts of the time. That First mm-hmm. of all, and of course, I know that there are still many people who deal with chronic illness or Even with modern medicine, there can be a lot of sitting and waiting. But I think especially with illness in 
any kind of dramatic work, like in a movie, in a book, things are always happening. Even if it's not constantly life or death and now they have to get their pills and now they have to get this. So the idea that there is just staring at this person, willing them not to die. And then the idea that they can't have immediate communication with their mother, (laughs) which I can't imagine. So from, I have had a (laughs) cell phone, you know, since I was a teenager, certainly by the time I left home, I could always text my parents and anyone else I wanted. So the idea of being in such a dire situation and being like, should we send the telegram, especially knowing things can change, right? You can send a telegram that says everything is fine. And by the time that it gets there, everything could not be fine, which is just a reality that they would have had to live with and seems insane. Yeah. There's so much stress here. And I think it's interesting how we literally see Lori stepping into a surrogate mother role because at the same time as Beth is very, very ill, Marmy is in Washington tending to Mr. March, who is also ill. Although it sounds like he He's gotten better, but then he's had a relapse. So his health is very much touch and go as well. So there's a real, do I mean, do we take her away from her husband at this moment? Do we get her to come back here? And it is ultimately, it's Lori who just goes ahead and makes the call without notifying the sisters. But it's also Lori who gets to comfort Joe in what Alcott describes as a motherly way. She writes, Lori longed to say something tender and comfortable, but no fitting words came to him. So he stood silent gently stroking her bent head as her mother used to be. It was the best thing he could have done, far more soothing than the most eloquent words, for Joe felt the unspoken sympathy. And I think it's so interesting there, Lori stepping into this very feminine mother role for Joe when she needs it. And we've talked a lot about the incredible affinity that Lori, having lost his mother, feels for Marmy, and mothering really comes naturally to him. And it really does comfort Joe in a moment where she's like really at her lowest here, I think in the whole book, maybe. And she's really going through it. There's a moment where she actually does think that Beth has died. She's mistaken. Mm -hmm. The fever has turned, (laughs) but she's really going through it. Do you have any thoughts on just the real evident aptitude Lori has for these feminine comforting roles? It's notable that he wants to be a part of this literal sisterhood. Like he, he comes and I think there are ways that he could have been like, I am going to be the big brother you all didn't have, which in some ways that is Mm -hmm. often true. But really, he's just like, I want to join you guys. You guys are this band of sisters and I want to join. You know, there's a lot of ways that he could have created a divide that he didn't. I think think that's one of the only ways that, again, Joe's surprise, at least in the 90s version, worked because she's just like, you're one of our sisters. I I have not seen you in this male role. So how could you have seen, you know, this potential for us? Yeah. There's a line in the 94 movie where is it, I don't know whether it's Joe or Amy who says it, but the line is like, he's not a boy. He's Lori. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Very pointed, very pointed. We love that. I want to also, while we're on this line, Joe is crying. She's kept up bravely until now and never shed a tear, but she's crying now. And holding her as she cries, Lori drew his hand across his eyes, but could not speak till he had subdued the choky feeling in his throat and steadied his lips. It might be unmanly, but he couldn't help it. And I am glad of it. So Alcott literally breaks the fourth wall and offers her perspective here. She's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm glad that Lori can cry. And he doesn't care if it's unmanly. There are a few places in the book where she like offers her direct opinion, but here she's like, all right, 
Sophie, it's okay to cry MP3. Let's get into it. <laughs> Which I really love. And actually the worry that crying will be seen as unmanly is also like a worry that Joe shares. So I think it's sweet that they both have the worry in the moment of not being seen as strong. And they, they do get to let their guard down around each other in a way that I don't even think that it's not Joe and Meg having this moment. It's not Joe and Hannah. It's Joe and Lori. <laughs> and it's a very specific thing, which I love. Yeah, I just, I love this relationship. Like how do you, what is your stance on Joe and Lori? I'm just curious. We haven't gotten into that. <laughs> Can of worms. I am a really big romantic. Okay. So I often, if a couple, a romantic couples tease, I often like to see them together. Mm-hmm. That said, I really, even as a teenager, appreciated mm-hmm. like, okay, she's a strong, independent woman. She yep. is just going to go on to her own. <laughs> when she marries the old professor, I'm like, I'm done. I, <laughs> you could marry Lori or you could forego marriage, but this is the worst of all. Yeah. Options. And again, I, that is another thing that I appreciate about the Greta Gerwig one that it suggests that's something that an editor wanted rather than yeah. what happened in real life, which was closer to Alcott's yeah. real life. So that I appreciate, but I really, I have a memory of being a kid and when, especially, you know, seeing the age difference and seeing that he is beyond, you know, as a kid, I yeah. was like, whoa, age difference. But as an adult <laughs> now, just the way they're drawn, Lori really does see her as an equal. Yes. And yes. this guy talks to her in such a patronizing way. Oh, I know. Say some of that is he's much older, but I'm like, mm-hmm. what? Figure out your own writing and your writing will grow with time. Don't listen. Who is this guy? No, I have to say of all the film adaptations I've seen, I dislike the 94 handling of Bear the most. The Joe's Boys podcast, we are fortunate enough so far to have a unanimous five-star rating. And I thank you for all of that. But I have a feeling when we get to Bear in the book, opinions will be divided. <laughs> <laughs> I may get some flag for being a hater, but I don't like it. And it's hard for me to imagine Joe and Bear sharing the moment that Joe and Lori share in this chapter and getting to no, be that true. vulnerable with each other and getting to enter this space where gender matters less and Lori can be unmanly and cry and comfort her like a mother. And they can even like enter this romantic space and just kind of very calmly exit it without it sounds like too many feelings being hurt. I have to ask you, because I've had this experience so many Mm -hmm. times. Have you ever mentioned the fact that the sequel is called Joe's Boy and have people just not believe you? Or not Joe Boy's Little Men. People (laughs) will flat out, I'll be like, yeah, Little Men. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's a a companion to Little Women. And they're like, you're making that up. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. (laughs) I've never gotten that exact reaction. I do think it's really funny when you have the journal entry or maybe it's a letter. I don't remember off the top of my head, but we have Alcott in writing saying, this editor wants a girl's book. I don't like this kind of thing. I never liked girls or knew many. I'm not enjoying myself, but whatever. (laughs) And she's talking about writing little women, right? And she's like, I don't like girls. I don't like writing this book. She's like, whatever. And I find it really funny that as soon as little women took off and became a success, And they were like, all right, sequel. She's like, little men, Joe's boys. We're focusing on me now and what I want to write. You know, as as we've said, she felt like she should have been born a boy. She expressed very explicitly identifying with manhood, feeling like she was by some freak of nature, a man's soul in a woman's body. And even when she's older, she's staying at a hotel in England and looking out at a schoolyard full of boys playing. And she's like, I just wish I could go join them. So it's, it feels natural that she's like, all right, now that I'm done with the autobiographical portion, let's like write about some fictional little men. Let's get into that. And then Laurie is also straddling the line between boy and girl as well, which is interesting. He's very much not a typical boy in any respect. Yeah. 
Sorry, I feel like I just monologued at you for a long time. <laughs> it's okay. My goodness. Yeah. I haven't read Little Men yet. I, at this point, I'm saving it for the podcast. That was not intentional at first, but now I'm like, I mean, I have to read it in real time <laughs> and react to it. But yeah, my goodness. So I don't want to keep you here too much longer. Is there anything else that you want to touch on here before we head out? Yeah, I would just say I'm always struck, I feel like, when I read Little Women by how kind of, so as you mentioned, this chapter is literally called Dark Days, but it is really hopeful. There are just so many chunks of prose. And then I remember the beauty. And again, some of that is in the kind of traditional emo kid way of like, all of that's gone now that she's sick. It comes back. And when I was doing the adaptation, I read what was obviously, I really liked it. It was obviously Mm -hmm. a book written for children but written for children in like the 60s okay so and it was about her it was about Louisa May Alcott's upbringing Mm -hmm. so it really spared nothing and all I can think about is that moment where I don't know if you talked about it in the podcast before but where her dad thought of maybe leaving the family and he sat them down and was like hey I'm thinking about leaving you all what do you feel about that? And that she was still able to feel, well, and again, mm-hmm. we'll never know, right? Was she still able mm-hmm. to feel such warm and hopeful things around family? Or did she mm-hmm. have so many crushing blows about mm-hmm. her family growing up that she's like, I'm going to create this idealized version? Either way, the writing is very beautiful. Yes. I mean, we know that the relationship with Bronson, her father, was a rocky one. It seemed like she really lived for her mom. That familial relationship was very important to her. She was very loyal to Anna, her older sister. The relationship with May, who inspired Amy, was maybe a bit rockier, but she really does get to idealize it in a lot of ways. And it's interesting that one of the ways she does this is literally by just separating the father from the family. (laughs) Yeah. Which is that that is something that he proposed it. This was during their kind of utopian commune era. I mean, who doesn't have a utopian commune era? Not normal. I feel like you you do that in college. He waited until he had a big family to support when literally women couldn't support themselves and was like, I think this should be my hippie face. Yeah. He's like, all right, so I have a wife and four daughters. I think our commune should be sex segregated. That's interesting. The official feeling about Bronson here at Joe's Boys Corp is mixed. But yeah, no, I think there is kind of a really idealized gloss, especially here. Maybe not so much in the second half as the characters get to grow up a bit. I found it interesting that a lot of adaptations of little women in the YA space, Beth never dies. The thing I've seen most often is Beth develops cancer. She goes through a very difficult process of chemotherapy and radiation, and she pulls through, which I don't know if that's maybe more age appropriate. It certainly reflects the arc in this book, in the first volume. But it's interesting how like people just don't want to let Beth go. Yeah, I think, I mean, why yeah. they'll kill characters off left and right. My <laughs> students are constantly asked, what's too dark to put in YA? I'm like, they haven't found it yet. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's specifically yeah. the same way that Alcott was like, my sister died. Let's make her live. I think a lot of mm-hmm. people grew up reading Little Women. And they're like, mm-hmm. we didn't like it when Beth died. Let's make her live. Like she will survive. I have to plug, I read a book called The Spring Girls, which is sort of a new adult Little Women and I didn't know until I opened it that it was by the author of After, which is the adapted from Harry Styles' Wattpad fan fiction series. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of so that. So this was, the author was Anna Todd, and this was her take on Little Women. And I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I don't know what I'm in for if this is the Harry Styles author. 
it took many liberties. I wound up loving it and thinking it was kind of punk rock. And one of the most punk rock things it did was like, Beth does not get sick at all. Beth is kind of an agoraphobe. And she gets dragged to this craft fair where she meets a really cool lesbian and she has this budding teenage lesbian relationship. I'm like, I love this for Beth. Yeah, give her something yeah. interesting other than just being like, I so love taking care of my sisters and everyone <laughs> until I die. Yeah, people remember that. I think the kind of self-flagellating part of Beth gets lost in the shop a little bit. And she's unconscious for this challenger. <laughs> so we don't get a lot of that. Well, that is, that is yeah. one of the saddest things in whether it's when she's <laughs> semi-conscious and she's playing piano on her covers. Oh I'm God. like, oh God, that's a sad image. That's really, that's really so sad. sad. And then Grandpa Lawrence, he locks up the piano. He's like, I can't, I can't bear to listen to the piano right now. It reminds me of Beth and I'm, I'm just in a sensitive place, which I- Very secret garden. Very secret Very garden. like, this yeah. is a thing that once brought me joy, but now it's connected to set. This is, yeah. this is just an old man thing. He's, rather than deal with these complex emotions, I'm going to literally lock something away and hope that yes. works emotionally too. And it doesn't. <laughs> and we have expressed some thoughts on this podcast about how Lori likes to play the piano and it's not okay when Lori does it, only when Beth does it. <laughs> Why might that be, Grandpa Lawrence? But I think that was the episode I did with my friend Naomi Kanaki. And she's like, yeah, obviously playing the piano is totally gay. I don't know, may- maybe Lori playing the piano would soothe you. Grandpa Lawrence, maybe, as you said, he needs to unlock those old man emotions. So very last thing I want to highlight is there's a scene where this is after, it seems like the fever has not turned, but the mood has started to turn. Marmy's on her way. Joe's had a drink. She's had a glass of wine. She's feeling better. (laughs) Right. And we get this moment where Lori lay on the rug, pretending to rest, but staring into the fire with the thoughtful look, which made his black eyes beautifully soft and clear. And my note on this is, Joe may not be in love with Lori, but Louisa May Alcott is, one. And, <laughs> and two, this image of Lori lying on the rug, that's an exact parallel of the famous image from the opening of Joe lying on the rug in a gentlemanly manner. And I, it's just one more example of how at this stage in the book, Joe and Lori are sort of melting into each other and taking on each other's characteristics. And I just really love that. I love that little image. It happens with a lot of close friendships, right? You yeah. pick up their mannerisms, you pick up their turn of phrase. Yeah, it's, just, it's so special. It's one of the things I cherish most about this book. So we'll leave it there. Beth is feeling better. Marmy's on her way. All is well. So Molly, thank you so much for being here today as a very accomplished author in your own right, as the author and playwright of a Little Women adaptation, which I genuinely didn't know I'm going to be kicking myself about that for a while. <laughs> Where can people find you online, Molly? Where can they buy your book? They can buy my book anywhere except... Amazon, because we shouldn't be buying books on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) But also go to an indie bookstore. They're fun. If they don't have it, they'll order it for you. And (laughs) you'll probably stumble across other books. And it's just, it's it's good to go to bookstores. Yes, I 100% agree. This is Epically Earnest, again, by Molly Horan. And I am Peyton Thomas, your host. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca or on Twitter at Peytonology. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. And sorry, Molly, did you have like a social media handle, anything you wanted? Oh to yeah, sure. My Instagram is Molly like the dog. <laughs> love that. Love that. Molly like the dog on Instagram. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you are enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell your friends, drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen. And thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.